The eighth chapter of Romans. One of the favorite chapters in the Bible for some in this church and many outside this church. A wonderful chapter indeed. We could spend a great deal of time here. And we will trust the Lord to guide our teaching of it that we don't spend too long, but that we spend long enough. The epistle to the Romans may be divided at the 11th and 12th chapters, with the first 11 chapters describing God's merciful grace in saving and verse chapters 12 through 16 describing the practical consequence of that salvation, how we ought to live holy, sacrificial lives to Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. If we make that division, but then we realize that chapters 9 through 11 pertain to Jewish-Gentile issues, which they do, along with God's grace and mercy and predestinating purpose in saving us, we come to Romans chapter 8 as the last of the what we might call theological or doctrinal chapters that are dealing with our salvation in Jesus Christ. Because then we have three chapters dealing with some issues about the the olive tree and the transfer of the worship of God from the Jews to the Gentiles, and how many of the Jews would be saved by God's grace, and how many of the Gentiles, and so forth. We come to this chapter. This is the crown jewel of the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. I say that because Paul has been building a case toward this chapter. In this chapter, he will kindly leave off, for the most part, his dealings with Jewish legalists, and their infatuation and confidence, confidence falsely placed, in Moses' law. We Gentiles do not have a temptation to go back to Sinai and trust Moses' law for our salvation. But Paul, in a number of the New Testament epistles, had to deal with that heresy. And he dealt with it in some of the chapters that we have leading up to this 8th chapter. But he leaves that behind. He dealt with it thoroughly in chapter 7. He dealt with it in chapter 4 and other places on our way to chapter 8. It's a wonderful chapter. I wonder if there are any ambitious enough in the church that, as we take our time working through it, that would want to memorize the 39 verses of the 8th chapter of Romans. What what material and matter to put in your mind and heart for when you're driving or doing other mindless tasks... Keep a little bit of your mind on the road. You can be speaking Scripture to yourself. And that Scripture being the 8th chapter of Romans. What a wonderful chapter it is. It's got three divisions within the chapter. Verses 1 through 14 describe our obedience and life style in the Holy Spirit of God as the evidence and assurance of our eternal life. The condemnation that has been lifted in Christ Jesus is upon those who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. That's in verses 1 through 14. He will deal with the subject at length and point out that if you're not walking after the Spirit, then you must not have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, then you're none of Christ. In verses 15 through 27, 
The apostle will describe the Holy Spirit as the earnest of our present and future blessings of salvation. And some of those blessings are not described in the detail they are here. Some future, some present. The delivering of the entire creation from the bondage of corruption and the power of the Holy Spirit to assist our praying and to intercede for us with groanings which cannot be uttered according to the will of God. What a prayer partner in the Holy Spirit. And then the verses from verse 28 through the end of the chapter, God has fully secured our salvation, eternal life, and He declares it in the most absolute terms that it is impossible to be lost from Christ if we've been given to Him. We want to ask ourselves this day, Have I been given to the Lord Jesus Christ by Almighty God? Am I in union with Him so that condemnation has been lifted for me? And that question can be answered. You can examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith, in Christ, or not. And so we must do that, and we want to do that. Romans chapter 8 is the third chapter of the doctrinal consequences of chapters 1 through 5. Chapter 6 was, the gospel of grace does not lead to lascivious living. The question was asked and answered. What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That was chapter 6 by appealing to baptism and appealing to the concept of servitude. Then Paul defended himself from those who would accuse him of denigrating the law of Moses in chapter 7. And and that's a consequence of what he taught in chapters 1 through 5. There would be some Jews in love with the law of Moses and would criticize the apostles. So he's defended himself by stating that the law is a spiritual, good, just, and holy thing. He's just unable to keep it. So we come to the 8th chapter. And the 8th chapter is the crown jewel by telling us wonderful things of how to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, how we're to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, and how the changes that are coming in this universe are staggeringly wonderful. And that all those things are absolutely ours because God has purposed them from the very beginning in His predestinating grace, and there isn't a chance that we can be separated from His love, which is in Christ Jesus by any means. What a chapter, Lord. Help us to delight in it and live worthy of it and live according to what it teaches us. We come to the first verse, and we'll read the first verse to you. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Amen. Amen. This verse has three very great doctrines in it. And we do not want to miss any one of them. We will take it apart, word or phrase at a time, but I want you to see that there are three great doctrines in this particular verse. First of all, there is deliverance from condemnation. The condemnation we earned, the condemnation we deserve, the condemnation that God's justice must pay is gone. That's salvation. That is justification. That is redemption. That is reconciliation. That is propitiation. 
That is, every descriptive phrase that the New Testament gives about us being saved from the justice of God and the evil of our sins. Salvation is taught. Second, that salvation is in Christ Jesus, where we must find ourselves or we don't have this lifting of condemnation from us. The union of the elect with the Lord Jesus Christ is essential. Without it, there is no salvation. And we want to remember that we are united to Jesus Christ in several different relationships, one of which we must choose this day to give any evidence that the first three were done for us. So we want to see our union with Christ in the words which are in Christ Jesus, because condemnation has only been lifted for those in Christ Jesus. Then we want the last compound clause, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is our sanctification. Sanctification is the evidence of someone in Christ Jesus, and it's being in Christ Jesus that is the basis for us having our condemnation lifted. Three doctrines. We want all three of them. We don't want to minimize one of them. We don't want to exalt one over the others. They are all important in their proper place. And the apostle is going to take the last compound clause and expand on it all the way through the 14th verse. He's going to be working over who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He's going to be expanding on that one as the most important of the three in this context because he's already taught us the other two in the chapters leading up to chapter 8. Do not underestimate the value of this verse. This verse is a well-known verse. This verse is so concise, uses so few words, and yet declares three great doctrines of our faith. There is therefore. You know that I love to find therefores in the Bible because a therefore is a logical connector where the apostle and Paul loved therefores is tying together things he had already taught with what he will now summarize. There is therefore. So there are things that Paul has taught leading up to chapter 8 that we want to remember so that we fully appreciate what is described here. There is therefore now no condemnation. And we want to start with that clause. There is therefore now no condemnation. Thank you, Lord, because you and I are condemned. We are not only condemned to die physically, we are condemned to be born with a dead nature toward God, and we are condemned to die the second death in the lake of fire unless condemnation is lifted. We are condemned. And the apostle has proven that thus far in this book of Romans. Let's go back and look at our condemnation. Chapter 1. Very quickly. That therefore is there for a reason. And if you don't quickly remind yourself of the condemnation that Paul has proven, you won't appreciate the words, there is therefore now no condemnation. Because leading up to this chapter is full of condemnation. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Do you fit that verse? You absolutely fit that verse. That verse is describing you personally. And the wrath of God has been revealed by the Apostle Paul as coming against you because you fit that verse. Verse 32 of the same chapter. Speaking of you again and me again, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. We are not satisfied just with breaking God's law ourselves and doing all the inconvenient things described in this chapter. We take pleasure in them that do them. We choose for our friends those that sin the same sins. We choose for our entertainment Hollywood's glorification of this list of sins. We are depraved and wicked, and we are condemned, and you are condemned. You personally are condemned. You may make it home safely from this assembly. You may live another week. You may live another few years. But I promise you, you will stand before a holy God whose wrath is revealed from heaven in this epistle and in this first chapter. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. That's describing the Gentiles that did not have the written law of God. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And no one can do the law of God. The whole purpose of Paul is to prove your condemnation. Verse 14, for when the Gentiles which have not the law in a written form, I'm adding for your understanding, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Paul's gospel declared that God was a God of judgment and a God of wrath against sinners. Chapter 1 got you. Chapter 2, have you ever sinned against your conscience? Has your conscience ever told you what you ought to do in line with the law of God, but you didn't do it? Has your conscience ever told you that what you're doing you shouldn't be doing, and you should immediately cease and desist, but you continue in it anyway against your conscience, which is called the candle of the Lord in the Bible, declaring to you the law of God? You're condemned by chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 3. Verse 19, this is God warning you in advance of your standing before him. Verse 19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you think you're an exception to that condemnation? You are not. Therefore, with the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. God gave a set of commandments, and all those commandments did was prove how sinful we are. Verse 23 would say, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. After three chapters, you are condemned. And you will meet God on these terms 
without some other chapters and then without the evidence that you're included in those other chapters. This is God's indictment of you. And we have studied this in detail, but without reviewing it, you don't fully and properly appreciate no condemnation. Because you are condemned. You you fit chapter 1 so well. You fit 2 so well. And I, along with you, fit 3 so well. Let's come over to chapter 5. There's verses in 4 that condemn you, but we'll pass over them to get to chapter 5. Look at verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. Adam is the one in this verse. Adam was your sin representative. Adam was your federal head. Adam was your legal representative in the sight of God in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, he condemned you to all the punishments of sin. You are guilty for eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by proxy with Adam because God arranged for Adam to be the representative for you in his Garden of Eden. You are condemned. You are condemned to the physical death I've described, the spiritual death we're born with, and the second death of the lake of fire. All of that necessary and part of the consequences of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are condemned. And brethren, you're wondering about it? You doubt it? Then why are you dying? Why do babies die? Why is the hospital full at this time? Why does a nursing home stink? Do you doubt it? Look around. We have minds decaying. We have bodies falling apart. Because the condemnation of sin is clutching at you right now and is pulling you right down into the grave. Because death is going to feast on you. Because we're condemned. We have sinned. We have sinned in our first father, and we have sinned ourselves, and we have a sin principle within us that hates everything that is God and every commandment of God. We're condemned. Verse 19, or let's get 18. It's, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. You are condemned because of Adam. It doesn't matter how righteous you might live. It doesn't matter how early you might die. Why do babies die? They die because they're related to Adam. That is condemnation visible before your eyes. Chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You're condemned. You've earned the wages. Look at verse 24 of chapter 7. Romans 7, 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There is condemnation in chapters 1 through 7. We have spent the last year and 66 messages going over these first seven chapters. That is your condemnation. Now, you live in a world where ESPN doesn't want you to think about condemnation. You live in a world where Walmart doesn't want you to think about condemnation. You live in a world where everything is set to distract you and keep you from thinking about the state of your soul and the absolute necessity of a Savior. 
So we have the Word of God, and we come into His house to the testimony of Israel. As Psalm 122 told us, to remind us of our situation predicament and our condemnation. That is why when we come to the 8th verse, there is therefore now no condemnation. Not most of it's been lifted. Not some of it's been lifted. All of it's been lifted. I heard an amen when we sang the 5th verse of and can it be. No condemnation now I dread. Amen. Because it's been lifted. Boldly I can approach the eternal throne. I can boldly approach the eternal throne because my sins have been washed away. There's no condemnation left upon me. It was, it was applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. He stood condemned under the wrath of God. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him instead of us. It was applied to Him for His elect. And not a single one of them will have to face that condemnation themselves. It is lifted. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let's go back and find the lifting of condemnation. Look at chapter 1 very quickly with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. We have the word salvation in 1.16, and it is by the power of God to save those that were condemned. In other places, it's called the power and the wisdom of God. Because God sent a perfect substitute in our place to die condemned for our sins, but to have lived a perfectly righteous life that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Praise the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's chapter 1. Look at chapter 3. I'm skipping 2 this time. Verse 24. Look at 3.24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. It is by free grace... Freely given, free justification, all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without this, blessing of Romans 1, 15 through 17, chapter 3, 24 through 26, you are condemned. You don't see it clearly now. Do you know why you don't see it clearly? Because your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You think that God looks at you differently than others. You think that you're going to get away with your sins. Your heart blinds you from even thinking about the matter. But the Word of God is true. We trust this Bible on every subject, including our condition and state before God. Our legal state. We are condemned. But look what chapter 4 told us. Chapter 4 and verse 5. But to him that worketh not... But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. God justifies some ungodly men. Well, I know I fit the ungodly part of that statement. Am I one of his justified ones? We need to answer that question. We come to the last verse of chapter 4. 
Romans 4.25, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Jesus Christ was delivered into the, the power of the civil rulers of this world for our offenses. He died for your offenses. This is the no condemnation part of these chapters leading up to Romans 8. And then he was raised again for our justification. Look at chapter 5. It's the chapter that described the first Adam. It also describes the second Adam. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. You were made a sinner 6,000 years before you had personal existence. You were made a sinner by covenant with your first Adam, your first father, God's representative for you in the Garden of Eden. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. It goes on to say, So, in the way specified, by representation, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Praise God. It's not my righteousness. It's not that I might be righteous by anything I could or would do. It's by the obedience of one that made me righteous. The federal head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is the lifting of condemnation. Chapter 7, verse 25. After Paul asked the hopeless question of verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we're at Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 is part of an epistle. It needs to be understood in its context. You are totally condemned by the first seven chapters in different ways Forms and shades of condemnation. But there's also been hints of your redemption throughout those chapters. All the way from the beginning of chapter 1 about the gospel of Jesus Christ revealing the good news about the power of God to save us through Jesus Christ His Son. And now we come to this 8th chapter and here we are when it says there is therefore. There is therefore now no condemnation. The last verse we have to deal with is that 25th verse of chapter 7, which is the tightest context to the therefore in Romans 8.1, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Our Lord. That's the immediate context. There is therefore now no condemnation. We were shown that lifting of condemnation throughout the seven chapters, but it was just stated as chapter 7 came to a conclusion. No condemnation. When you stand before God, you can go there boldly. Death is a great transaction. Here's what happens. You get to give up your sin-loving flesh in order to gain eternal life in heaven. Now, what's wrong with that transaction? Well, I'm not going to get the promotion that I think I might get in the year 2011. How about being promoted to the right hand of God with the Lord Jesus Christ and being a joint heir with Christ? No condemnation. You can run to Him. He's your Father. The Bible tells us to come boldly under the throne of grace. It's called a throne of what? It's a throne of wrath. It's a throne of judgment. It's a throne of condemnation. How is it called a throne of grace? 
Because it's washed with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled His blood through the eternal Spirit that turned it into the mercy seat. It's a throne of seat. It's the mercy seat. It's where God dwells. You can go boldly to Him. He's adopted you. You're not His servant or slave in a gospel legal sense. You are His Son. He's adopted you. Praise God, there is therefore now no condemnation. Not only has condemnation been lifted, but adoption has been applied. We are His, and His forever, never to be lost. Sons and daughters, He our God, He our Father. And He says, come, come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy to help in time of need. Praise God. That's what Romans 8, 1 is trying to tell you from everything Paul had taught. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I remember when I'd only been ordained a year or so and was down here and a believer in Virginia called me and said that a preacher of the Church of Christ was on the radio up there. I couldn't hear it because the signal couldn't carry over the mountains. But he said, this guy is driving me crazy. He's on the radio and he's challenging Baptist preachers to call in because he has an impossible dilemma for them that if they call in, they're going to have to end up being Church of Christ preachers. They're going to have to give up their Baptist theology and become Campbellites. Here's his verse, Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now the Church of Christ preacher correctly explained that verse. All spiritual blessings from the presence of the Holy Spirit to eternal life in heaven to your name written in the book of life to justification is all in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Ephesians 1.3 tells us that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I want some Baptist preacher to call in and tell me how we get into Christ Jesus. He was waiting for some Baptist preacher to call in and use any verse that would imply that faith is the means to get into Christ Jesus, because then he would show them from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 that we are baptized into Christ Jesus. And see, there's the hook from the church of Christ. They want to teach that you have to be water baptized in order to be saved and go to heaven. Now, how difficult is this, was this man's dilemma? So some Baptist preacher from South Carolina called him on the radio, though he couldn't hear the argument. He just heard by way of phone what was going on and said, What in the world are you asking? Ephesians 1.3 doesn't end with a period. Ephesians 1.4 gives the answer. According. According. This is how you get into Christ Jesus. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You say to me right now, there's no way a man that could get on the radio would be that dumb to ask a challenge from verse 3 without reading verse 4. Oh yes, they do it every day. He challenged me to a debate. First of all, he got the radio audience all against me by emotion. By saying, do you mean to tell me that God chooses men in Christ Jesus that end up being rapists, walking our streets and raping poor, helpless old women? That's the best you can do. 
He wants to challenge you to a debate. See, the Church of Christ believes that one debate's worth a thousand sermons. Alexander Campbell taught them that. I said, I'll debate you in Bristol, Virginia, but first of all, we're going to have a preaching service, and you better be there with your people. He said, I'll promise you a thousand people in Bristol, Virginia, if you'll come and debate me. I said, I'll debate you, but first of all, we're going to have a preaching service because that's what the Bible teaches. Right. He only sent one spy to take the written materials from an overhead presentation about union with Christ. And brethren, I'm so thankful that God has shown us the five phases of salvation that tell us about the different unions with Christ because there's an eternal union with Christ, a legal union with Christ, a vital union with Christ, and a practical one. And all they have ever figured out is the practical one because they don't know anything about the doctrine of God. Right. When he didn't send his thousand people to a preaching service because he wanted to wait for a debate, we spoke on the phone for the last time. And he had my materials in his hands and he said, I just want you to know that even if you would have been able to defeat me in a debate, the people would have believed me because I present the Christ they want to hear. I quote, isn't that terrible? People hate the doctrine of election. And that's where we have to go right now. Follow with me quickly. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. If you want to think on something right now and you ought to have goosebumps on the back of your neck, I do telling you about it, you had better guarantee and find out how You better find out how and guarantee yourself for the assurance of your faith that you are in Christ Jesus. How do you get in Christ Jesus? Because that's where there's no condemnation. I've answered it once already. Ephesians 1.4 According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Where were you at the foundation of the world? You were 6,000 years away from existence. But God chose you by name in the Lord Jesus Christ if you're one of His elect. So now we've got to ask ourselves, am I one of God's elect? We want to be in Christ Jesus. Right. We're told in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God has saved us according to a purpose that it was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Slightly different terminology, both describing before Adam and Eve, God placed His purpose to save us according to His own grace, in Christ Jesus. The text says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. If you cannot find yourself or prove yourself in Christ Jesus, death is one horrible thing, and it is coming for you, and it is working in this room right now. Are you in Christ Jesus? The first union we have with Christ Jesus is by electing grace. We are chosen in Him, and He has purposed to save us by name and by covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our names were written in the book of life, never to be blotted out, never to be taken out, if you're one of God's elect. If you're one of God's elect, then the Lord Jesus Christ was your legal representative. The Bible says, as in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. This is describing our legal representation by the Lord Jesus Christ that Romans 5 described His obedience being applied to our accounts leading to our justification and righteousness before God. So we were chosen in Him so that Jesus could go to the cross as a substitute for us legally. 
so that God might be just and the justifier of men. There's another union we have with Christ. When we're quickened by the Holy Spirit of God, these are all unconditional. Your election before the foundation of the world was unconditional based on God's grace alone. Jesus Christ dying on the cross was unconditional because God gave him the very ones he was to die for. Third, you're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And it goes on to say in that passage, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. There is a vital union. When we use the word vital, it's not in the Bible. It's a word that I use to give the sense of Scripture. When Adam the paramedic appears on the scene of an accident, what is he supposed to check for soon? Or you nurses that are checking someone that has pushed the button and calling for the nurses at the nurse's station. You look for vital signs because vital is a word that describes life. Life is present. It's our vital relationship with Jesus Christ in that we have his life in us. We have a new man in us. And we are set together with him in heavenly places. Not when we die, when we're born again. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us it begins when we're born again. When we're quickened, we're made alive. That's why I call it vital. When we're quickened, it means to make something alive. And so there's our third union with Jesus Christ. We're chosen in Him before the world began. He stood as our representative at the cross of Calvary and bore our sins in His own body, our own sins in His own body on the tree. We are then quickened together and made to sit together in a vital relationship with Him in heaven. He's dwelling in our hearts by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called His Spirit in Galatians chapter 4. These are our three unions. Well, how do I know if I was elected in Christ and Jesus died for me at the cross and that I've been born again? Are you living a resurrected life? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, which most men will not do, the vast majority of men will not do, they scoff at the whole idea. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you show the evidence of a born-again, regenerated new man. A born-again, regenerated new man shows the evidence that Christ died for that person. Christ dying for that person proves that God elected them before the world began. This is how we understand the doctrine of salvation that is right here when it says, No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We believe on Him. We are baptized into Christ. Because if we've been baptized into Christ, we've put on Christ. Every day we're supposed to put off the old man and to put on the new man, which is created after the image of Him who created Him, Christ Jesus. We put Christ Jesus on every day. If you are not living a holy, sanctified life, you do not show the evidence that you're one of God's elect, Christ died for you, and you're born again. It should change your life. It must change your life, or you have no evidence of eternal life. You don't belong in Romans 8.1. The only way you can get in Romans 8.1 is to be in Christ. And the way that we practically put Him on is to keep His commandments. 
We abide in the vine. We eat and drink of His flesh and His blood by believing on Him and keeping His commandments, by drawing nigh to Him and laying hold of Him by faith and obeying what He tells us to do. That is practical union with Christ, which proves vital union, which proves a legal union, which proves an eternal union. This is our doctrine of salvation. This is what the New Testament teaches us. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, placed there before the world began, represented by Him on the cross of Calvary, quickened into a vital union with Him by the Holy Spirit sometime during your life, and now it is your turn to bring forth the works and fruits that show those three unions in place for you. People say, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? Well, the Bible answers that question very plainly in Second Peter chapter 1. If you'll do these eight things, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, you can make your calling and election sure, and an entrance will be ministered unto you abundantly, barely, abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Fantastic words. How much condemnation is on a man who has an entrance ministered unto him abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ? How much condemnation is on such a man? None. Who are the servants that are going to minister that entrance to you? The angels of heaven. The angels of heaven who aren't even his adopted sons. We are. They're our servants. And I say that with all due respect to the number of angels that are in this room and hearing my voice. We thank God through Jesus Christ for our position. Angels, we never asked for it. We were given to, given it by pure grace. And Scripture tells us that you know how much grace it is because you desire to look into these things. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But you know what? There's a, there's a descriptive compound clause at the end of this verse that describes those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There are three great doctrines taught in this passage. Salvation from condemnation. Union with Christ Jesus and sanctification. What does sanctification mean? To live a holy life consecrated to God. It's gone. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. A person that is in Christ Jesus and has had his condemnation lifted is going to be changed. It's going to affect his life. He is not going to walk after the lust of his flesh. They will not control him. They will affect him from time to time, but he is going to make most of his choices after the Spirit of God so that his lifestyle will match up with what the Spirit of God describes as a spiritual lifestyle instead of a fleshly lifestyle. Now, brethren, we hold to this Bible, this Baptist canon of 66 books. Why do I call it a Baptist canon? Because this canon did not come out of the Roman Catholic Church. It has nothing to do with the Reformation. The canon of 66 books has existed since the days of Paul and Peter. That's why it's a Baptist canon. Because the only churches that existed in the days of Paul and Peter were Baptist churches. Started by John the Baptist and perpetuated by others that were baptized by him or the Lord Jesus Christ who was a Baptist. Or by his apostles who were all Baptists because they were baptized by a Baptist preacher. And they baptize the way a Baptist preacher baptizes. And we have these 66 books. But there is another Bible out there. And it's the devil's replacement for the King James Bible. 
And it goes under a whole variety of names. It's the English Standard Version. It's the New International Version. It's the New American Standard Bible. It's the New Living Translation. It's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Listen as I read to you Romans 8.1 out of those Bibles. Therefore, this is the NIV. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. I'm done. The New Living Translation. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I'm done. The English Standard Version. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did our, did our beloved brother Paul tell us that a day was coming in the which Christians would be so watered down and compromised so much they'd turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables that they would have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof? So they have a form of godliness. Lifting of condemnation which is in Christ Jesus. But they deny the power of it by taking away sanctification. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Isn't it true that most, many Christian churches today don't really care how you live? Just as long as you come and shout loud enough for the praise band and pay enough to build another mausoleum or coliseum or cathedral for their activities? Our Bibles tell us that the evidence of someone in Christ Jesus who has had condemnation lifted is a man walking after the Spirit, not after the flesh. Right. So, brethren, we have a duty. And I give me two verses. I'm way over, but I hope that you'll forgive me. I'll make up for it by quitting before 2 o'clock. Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Give me, give me two more texts. There's so much I want to say right here. This is, this is important right here. We can't get excited about there is therefore now no condemnation unless we're going to ask ourselves, am I in Christ Jesus? Right. Where this verse puts those who are not condemned. And if we say, yes, I'm in Christ Jesus because I've believed on Him and I've been baptized in His name, then are you walking after the Spirit and not after the flesh? Right. Walking... Walking is your lifestyle. Walking is your progress through life. Walking is your continual overall activity. It doesn't mean that once in a while you don't step in a ditch. But you are on a highway of holiness and a road of righteousness. You are in the straight and narrow way headed toward heaven. You are not in the broad and wide way headed toward destruction. You may step off it once in a while. And God forgive us when we do and help us to confess, repent, and reform immediately to get back on the road. But are you on the road? Because you are walking after the Spirit and not after the flesh. It means your lifestyle is Holy Spirit oriented. Not worldly oriented. Not fleshly oriented. You have a different life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... This is a practical verse. It's not describing your eternal union, legal union, or vital union. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is a description of a man in Christ. I said two texts. Now I've given you three. 
Because now we turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. This I say then, our same beloved brother Paul, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because these two are opposites, and they're fighting for you and your attention all the time. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. The things the Spirit wants are different than the flesh, and they lust against each other. And the things the flesh wants are contrary to the Spirit. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would perfectly. You cannot live a perfectly spiritual life because this flesh is going to reach out and grab you from time to time, just as we learn in Romans chapter 7. But your overall lifestyle will be in the road of righteousness. Your overall lifestyle will be spiritually oriented, spiritually obedient, obedient to the Spirit of God. Verse 18, But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. We're going to have 17, which Amanda answered in a recent Bible quiz, in order within the allowed seconds. But it's far more important to hate these things than it is to be able to quote them. I commend her for quoting them. I hope she'll grow up to be a great and virtuous woman in the earth that hates these 17 things in every fashion and form of them. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. These are 17 things we want to despise to walk after the Spirit instead of walking after the flesh. Adultery. Do you watch movies that promote adultery? Do you hang around with people who commit adultery? who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them? Cut off your friends that approve of adultery. I don't have time to preach the whole list. You just look beyond these words and you let the word of God be as broad as it should be because God's law is exceeding broad. Don't you think because you haven't committed the overt act that you are free because if you've committed the mental act, you are following the lust of the flesh. If you fantasize in your mind at all about a sexual relationship with anyone else, you are guilty of violating this text. And you are in the flesh. And if you're in the flesh, you're not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, condemnation is still resting upon you. All in the way of evidence. Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Three sexual sins. Lasciviousness. Loose lust, just doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it. Idolatry. Witchcraft. That's reading the horoscope. Hatred. Who do you hate? Who are you bitter against? Who are you holding a grudge against? You're guilty of hatred. You're guilty of murder in the sight of God. Variance. Why do you want to disagree all the time with people? If you disagree with people when there's no important God-fearing reason to disagree, you're guilty of variance. Emulations. Why do you strive and compete with others to equal or exceed them in anything? That is excessive competitiveness. Emulations. Wrath. How angry do you get? Why do you get angry? Is it a justifiable cause before the holy God of heaven? Or can't you rule your spirit? Strife. Why do you fight? Seditions. Why would you entertain anything different than what this church teaches? 
Why would you ever open your stinking mouth and belch forth your poison of differing with the established position of this church? It's called sedition. It's an attempt to overthrow the government of an established body. There's a proper way to handle differences in a church. Seditions, heresies. Why would you believe anything different unless you're going to bring a tsunami of evidence from the Word of God to us so that we can be convinced to believe your heresy with you? Envyings. Why would you be jealous or resent people that have an advantage over you? God has blessed others more than you. You should thank God for their blessings. Murders. You say, well, I've never murdered anyone. You don't know anyone that's ever had an abortion, huh? You don't know anyone that's ever been hateful against another person without a cause? They're guilty of murder. Drunkenness. Ever been drunk? Are you getting drunk? Revelings. Do you like to party and laugh and goof off and joke about a banquet? Seventeen sins and such like. Do you know what the words and such like mean? Anything else that could even look like a second or first cousin to this list is included in the list. Right. That's following the flesh. As I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that sound like condemnation is still upon people that do these things? It is. They're not in Christ and they're not walking after the Spirit. But now here's verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. If you're following the Spirit, here's the fruit that He bears in your life. Here's what you choose to live like. Love. That's set in opposition to hatred and murder. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. Isn't that one, isn't that wonderful? Joy. Are you happy? Are you happy? Peace. Who's unsettling you? What's disquieting your life? Are you at peace with everyone and everything? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Do you put up with people irritating you, offending you, and hurting you over and over? That's long-suffering. Gentleness. Whenever you deal with anyone, whether it's a child, a wife, or anyone else, you're gentle about it. Goodness. All you want to do is kind, benevolent things. Faith. You trust God no matter what your circumstances. Nothing nothing moves you that's happening in our government. Nothing moves you that's happening with your employer because you're full of faith. Meekness. You don't want the limelight. You love humility. Temperance. You're very self-disciplined. Against such there is no law. Verse 25 would say, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If you've been saved then you want to walk in the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to choose these things as your lifestyle, as opposed to the 17 things that are listed in verses 19 through 21. That is the difference right there. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. They don't do those 17 things and anything like them. The list in the New Testament is in the 50s. They don't do them. They don't hang around with those that do them. They don't watch entertainment that includes those things. They hate those things. They don't want anything to do with those things. Instead, they want the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit and that it's visible, evident in their lives. It's fruit that you can see hanging off their lives. They love other people. They're full of joy. They're at peace with everyone. They're My last text, 1 Corinthians 6. What does Romans 8.1 mean to you? It means that there is one glorious deliverance from condemnation that God has provided in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
And you need to find out whether you're in Christ or not. And if you're in Christ, you will live a changed life described the way I just showed you in Galatians 5. I come to 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? What? Know ye not? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This text has been abused by some who will teach that this is a condemnation of tobacco. There isn't anything like tobacco even near this passage. Not even near it. Sugar is far more hazardous to your health than tobacco anyway. It has nothing to do with physical health. Your body being the temple of the Holy Ghost. Starting at verse 12 down through verse 20, the context is adultery, fornication with a prostitute. That when you take your body and commit a moral crime against God with your body, then you are tying the Holy Spirit into such a wicked act, and that makes it more heinous. It has nothing to do with what you eat or drink. It has everything to do with moral transgressions against the law of God, and in this particular case, fornication. Look at verse 18. Flee fornication. But I don't want that point right now. What I want is, if you're going to walk after the Spirit, then you need to remember three things. God created you, so you owe Him your life. Jesus saved you, so you owe Him your life. Does it say you're bought with a price? The Holy Spirit indwells you. He possesses you. You owe Him to glorify God in body and spirit because the Holy Spirit has turned your body into a temple of worship to God. So if we're going to walk after the Spirit, we remember that we're created for God's glory, bought for God's glory, possessed by the Holy Spirit for God's glory. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit because they're God's. He created them, he bought them, and he's taken possession of them. And so we ought to live spiritual lives, not fleshly, carnal, worldly lives. Then we can know we're in Christ. Then we can know condemnation's been lifted. My dear brethren, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Let's help each other. Let's help each other walk after the Spirit. Amen. And may the Lord fill us with assurance and hope that condemnation has been lifted and we can look at death as a blessed passage into heaven. Right, Amen.